What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, we take a look at the following stories. First up, the VTOL FCPA enforcement action. Tom takes a deep dive on the FCPA compliance and ethics blog, and Mike Volkarv contributes a three-part series on his corruption, crime, and compliance blog. Is the SEC whistleblower program too opaque? Harry Kasson considers in the FCPA blog. AML reform and a new whistleblower law? Matt Kelly takes a look in radical compliance. Is the SEC discouraging whistleblowers under Dodd-Frank? Manke Sun explores in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Where did the Cheesecake Factory go wrong? Sarah Kropp takes a look and the Grand Jury Tiger. Five compliance triumphs from 2020. Kyle Brasser tells us more in Compliance Week. GDPR compliance challenges in 2021. Steve Horvath takes a look in Corporate Compliance Insights. And a China-U.S. audit showdown. Francine McKenna and The Dig. It's a new month, and in December, Tom has been speaking with Kim Yapchai on The Compliance Life. My AMI colleague, Mikhail Reeder-Gordon, has the Wirecard Saga, which is its new podcast all by itself. And on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, we have special guest Vindiciani, who talks about compliance and the clash of cultures. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, Episode 232. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 232, the week ending December 11, 2020, the holidays edition. As Trump land continues to live in fantasy and denial, going one for 51 in lawsuits, while over 3,000 Americans now die daily from COVID-19, Myself and Mr. Monitors are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. Jay, what say you? I say let's jump into something cozy and warm like anti-corruption as opposed to regular corruption. So we have, uh, starting off is the VITOL, VITAL, VITAE, VITOL, VITAL, FCPA enforcement action, which was announced late last week after we had recorded last week's, this week, uh, episode. And uh, it was, uh, I thought, an interesting action, Jay, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, Mike Volkoff took a deep dive into it. Uh, I took a deep dive into it. Uh, This was a Swiss energy trader who paid bribes to um, not simply obtain contracts, that was part of it, but also to get market information so they can engage in in anti-competitive behavior. we don't see that very often, but it's a good reminder for compliance professionals that uh, bribes are not always for contracts. So that was sort of one interesting point. Interesting point, two was uh, many energy companies have trading uh, arms because they buy um, product on the spot market to fill out, or if they have excess capacity, they can sell there. Uh, 
Well, every time you have a sale with a national energy company or uh, or purchase, that's an FCPA implication. So uh, energy companies need to look at their trading functions. It's not all domestic trading. And then finally, um, the uh, in some of the instances, the bribes were buried into the price of the contracts. Uh, one of the areas in Mexico and in Brazil, they had uh, sh- sham negotiations because they had already agreed upon a price illegally, uh, buyer and seller. And then they would pretend to go through a negotiation and hit right in the middle. Um, so uh, yet another uh, bribery scheme for compliance officers to be um, cognizant of. The fraudsters are, uh, one thing about fraudsters, Jay, is they're always looking at new ways to create, uh, engage in fraud. And that is what we have with uh, the Vitol FCPA enforcement action. So uh, next up, we've got something from Harry Kasson in the FCPA blog. And Harry wants us to consider whether the SEC whistleblowers program is too opaque. The Securities and Exchange Commission has awarded 123 whistleblowers an astounding $731 million since the first payout in 2012. But what do we really know about the program? The SEC's Office of the Whistleblower recently released its 2020 annual report, and it raises more questions than it answers, such as, why are whistleblowers anonymous? Who are they? Do they have any relationships that might create conflicts of interest for them or anyone else involved in an SEC whistleblower process? Does every whistleblower need a lawyer to manage the process and claim a reward? Only one whistleblower complaint out of about 400 is rewarded, So what are the odds of one law firm appearing in multiple successful proceedings? Why is there no record of criteria met for specific awards? The SEC says it received over 40,200 tips through the whistleblower program. How were the 123 individuals who've been paid nearly three quarters of a billion dollars selected? And what made them more deserving than the other 40,000 unsuccessful whistleblowers? Why is the underlying enforcement action kept secret? The SEC doesn't disclose what successful enforcement action a whistleblower is being rewarded for. Why not? Wouldn't that serve as a powerful deterrent for other companies and an encouragement for future whistleblowers? Does the SEC use whistleblower tips to target specific industries? And do certain geographic areas rate higher whistleblower awards? To recap, the U.S. federal government says unidentified private citizens of any nationality uh, can collect enormous amounts of money with no public accountability or open and reviewable administrative process. This is, even with the best of intentions, an odd arrangement. If anyone encountered the same scenario in another company, or rather country, say Russia, Angola, or Belize, wouldn't they be skeptical too? Harry isn't accusing anyone of anything untoward, but he's questioning an award program that seems entirely out of step with our normal standards of transparency and accountability. So, Jay, uh, we had some, uh, I think, very positive news on the anti-money laundering front this week, as reported by Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance. In the uh, National Defense Authorization Bill, there was a uh, part of it uh, unrelated to uh, national defense uh, and that's an overhaul of the Anti-Money Laundering Act of, tw- uh, of 2020 to overhaul the nation's anti-money laundering laws in a very uh, dramatic way. It requires additional due diligence. You have to find out who your ultimate beneficial partners are. Hopefully it'll do away with 
or at least lessen the uh, money laundering that goes through the art world and uh, buying a high-end property. But uh, it also created a new uh, whistleblower program, and it will be administered by the Treasury Department and FinCEN, and it's broader than any of the other whistleblower programs we've previously seen uh, in that uh, it appears you do not need to go to your company. It also appears that anyone can be a whistleblower. That means a CCO, a general counsel, uh, or other, and that uh, it has robust whistleblower protections um, that and, and uh, damages available for whistleblowers who are retaliated against. Also, um, it prohibits companies from sending whistleblowers to arbitration panels. So a very uh, pro-whistleblower portion of the Anti-Money Laundering Act. Uh, Congress, both houses of Congress have passed this bill. President Trump has threatened to um, veto the defense authorization bill for completely separate reasons, which are he wants to keep the name of uh, Confederate war heroes as army bases. So we'll have to see how that would play out. But a really positive push in the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. Great. So next up, we have our third article in a row that deals with whistleblowers at some point. This comes to us from Making Sun in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And she asked, is the SEC discouraging whistleblowers under Dodd-Frank? A new Securities and Exchange Commission rule interpretation threatens to weaken the incentive for external whistleblowers to come forward with details about potential corporate fraud. The clarification, which goes into effect next Monday, states that a whistleblower's tip has to offer insight beyond what would be reasonably apparent to the agency from publicly available info. That worries whistleblower lawyers and tipsters who have received awards. They fear the clarification could make it harder for tipsters from outside of a company to be awarded in a fast-growing program where the odds of getting a payout are already very long. Anyone with original information of potential financial wrongdoing can submit a tip to the SEC. The Cash for Tips program has attracted tips from company insiders, as well as outside experts who scrutinize corporate filings. Whistleblowers and their attorneys are concerned that the interpretation could give the commission greater scope to reject payouts and raise the bar for potential awards so high that some tipsters might be discouraged from coming forward. Jane Norberg, Chief of the SEC Whistleblower's Office said the agency recognizes the incredibly valuable independent analysis done by outsiders that helps it bring enforcement actions. Simply providing a publicly available document is not enough, Ms. Norberg says. It needs to be more. It needs to reveal some insight into the securities law violation that is in evidence from the face of the public document. Two Democratic commissioners who dissented during the vote for the rule in September, called the clarification problematic. They worry that the guidance will be inadvertently impact the perception of the type of information the commission considers valuable. You have to go down a lot of paths and a lot of blind paths without success to come out with something fruitful or for a third-party independent analysis that qualifies under the program. This came. This was a quote from Harry Markopoulos, who's been involved with the Madoff case in the past. Edward Seidel, a former SEC attorney who won $48 million in an SEC whistleblower award in 2017, helped provide information leading to an enforcement action against J.P. Morgan Chase. 
the FCC means that some outside uh, experts are better equipped to do this kind of forensic analysis than is offered required to uncover wrongdoing. Mr. Seidel, who now runs his own law representing whistleblowers and has submitted about 20 tips to the SEC based on independent analysis over years, says he imagines that the SEC was inundated with possible frivolous claims by limiting awards they could discourage people from coming forward. He says the program is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly profitable to the SEC and so incredibly beneficial to investors that this is not an area where you need to be concerned about cutting back on the input you're getting from the government, uh, from the, from the public. Jay, um, the cheesecake, I don't know. Do you guys go to the cheesecake factory? Is that one of the girls favorites? Uh, it is one of Bubby's favorites because when she buys her cheesecake, there's like a buy one, get $5 off the cheesecake next. So we are anxious to hear what's happening at the Cheesecake Factory. Well, they got spanked a little bit in the first SEC action for misleading disclosures around COVID-19. Uh, although the fine was, uh, and this comes from our friend Sarah Croft over at the Grand Jury Target, um, the fine uh, was relatively low, 125000 but... It could be a harbinger of things to come. The facts are, are pretty simple. Back in March and April, the Cheesecake Factory said it was operating substantially uh, during the first part of COVID-19. Well, it turns out that uh, that was just an outright lie because they were bleeding cash to the tune of $6 million a week in losses. They only had 16 weeks of cash remaining. They were trying to get, desperately trying to get uh investment from private equity or lenders in conjunction uh, with efforts to get uh, additional liquidity, told its landlords it couldn't pay rent in April 2020, and that uh, it was just um, completely different than what they were saying. Um, So the SEC has announced they have formed a coronavirus steering committee to proactively identify and monitor areas of potential risk such as this, But Sarah also brought up the highlight of potential uh, insider trading so that if they're telling the public uh, one thing and then the insiders who are on the inside and know are trading uh, in some other direction, this could also be an area rich for uh, potential uh, SEC enforcement. So the first uh, action related to misleading disclosures around COVID, the SEC is actively looking for it. Um, I hope if... uh, you don't have an expiration date on those uh, discounts um, because they may not be the worth the paper they're printed on shortly. So um, next up, we have an article from um, Kyle Brosser over at Compliance Week, and he's decided to take a look at five compliance triumphs from 2020. Uh, they're in no particular order. And uh, no, this podcast was not sponsored by the SEC whistleblower program, but this is the first thing Kyle wanted to recognize. Uh, And the SEC achieved such an unprecedented pace during the fiscal year of 2020, which ended on September 30th. They announced $175 million in payouts spread across 39 different awards. This impressive total is a record for the program. And it's already poised to be broken after the SEC announced $166 million in awards distributed to 12 whistleblowers during the first two years of fiscal year 2021. Next company to be recognized is Samsung, the Korean electronics manufacturer. 
And they had one of the most compliant, empowering moments of the year when its de facto leader, Jay Lee, held a candid press conference in May where he admitted that the company has not strictly complied with laws and ethics. The press conference was the first for Lee since 2015 and came at the urgency of the company's Compliance Oversight Committee. Lee, whose legal troubles extend beyond jail time, recently served for his role in a bribery scandal, revealed he will be the last member of the family to run Samsung. These are progressive steps forward for a company, all coming under the guide of empowered compliance. Next up, Goldman Sachs. Prior to Goldman Sachs agreeing to pay nearly $7 billion in settlements related to the 1MDB case, the uh, it has taken steps to put its misconduct in Malaysia behind for good. The SEC in April announced charges against former Goldman Sachs London executive Asante Burko for violating the FCPA. Burko allegedly orchestrated a bribery scheme to help a client win power plant contracts and the Republic of Ghana. But Goldman was not charged in the case because of the due diligence measures it took. Burko had tried to circumvent compliance policies at the firm in carrying out the scheme, but personnel in the department caught wind. So even though they've got a black eye from 1MDB, their actions, uh, their proactive actions in Malaysia put the company on a better path. Two more to go. Volkswagen, the German automaker, deserves props after completing its three-year monitorship in September. And this is one that has to deal with COVID. It wouldn't be a 2020 list without us acknowledging the coronavirus. Part of our new normal is the use of face masks, and one of the largest providers of N95 surgical masks is Minnesota-based 3M, which projects to have delivered 2 billion masks globally by the end of the year. The nod goes beyond 3M doing its part in providing PPE because it's also an acknowledgement of the company's efforts to fight fraud, counterfeiting, and price gouging related to all important products it manufactures. The company, as of December 1st, has filed 24 lawsuits to do just that, resulting in 15 settlements in which the defendant immediately and permanently ceased misconduct. 3M is terminating its agreements with distributors who ask unethically, and all the damages recovered by the company as a result of these efforts are being donated to COVID-19-related nonprofits. Jay, um, next up, we have an article in Corporate Compliance Insights by an author we have previously cited to, Steve Horvath, and he takes a look at his lessons learned from the uh, top five GDPR uh, cases uh, in, or at least his top five, compliance cases in 2021, and they're they're pretty succinct, and so I'm going to roll through them. H&M was fined $41.3 million in Germany for illegally surveilling employees and keeping the data. Uh, Italian telecom operator TIM was fined $32.5 million for uh, making promotional calls to people, even if they had opted out of receiving them. Uh, another Italian telecom operator, Windtray, was fined for making unsolicited marking communications after uh, uh, opt-out. Google was fined $8 million because they did not comply with the user's right-to-be-forgotten option to omit their names from search results. And then finally, a health insurance company, uh, which who I will not even try to pronounce, but is uh, monikered as AOK, uh, collected more than 500 participants' 
uh, personal data after organizing lotteries for uh, making that data available for advertising purposes. The lessons that um, Steve draws from this are that the major fines were for penalizing companies for the misuse of data relating to marketing and advertising, and that um, moving forward, uh, we'll probably see more security and privacy regulations come up, and there'll be a rush to find more effective ways to handle compliance. So uh, in a podcast I did with our colleague Jonathan Armstrong, he he phrased it as the regulators really uh, getting on their feet uh, and now I think we're uh, two plus years into uh, GDPR, so the regulators are really uh, kind of finding their way and figuring out how they want to enforce the law. So, uh, interesting stuff. Data privacy is going to be a huge problem going forward, uh, particularly for U.S. multinational companies doing business in Europe, and the fact that we don't have any sort of national data privacy, data protection law here in the United States. So our last article for the day is going to come to us from Francine McKenna's uh, blog called The Dig. It's actually a guest article from Michael Rappaport, who's a former reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And it's entitled, The U.S.-China Audit Showdown and the Decision that the Big Four Don't Want to Make. The U.S.'s long-festering clash with China over corporate audits is finally coming to a head and a dramatic upheaval in the U.S. stock market could result with potentially 200 Chinese companies getting booted out of trading in the U.S. stock exchanges. Can such a showdown be avoided? Maybe, but it might take a far-fetched idea that, among its other challenges, would require big four audit firms to get off a fence they've insisted on straddling for years. The House of Representatives unanimously approved a bill already passed by the Senate, that would require Chinese companies to use auditors who will submit to U.S. inspection. So if neither side blinks, is there a way out? It may lie in a proposal that the SEC reportedly plans to issue by the year's end. In this proposal, it would allow audit oversight requirement to be satisfied if there was a co-audit of the Chinese company from a second audit firm that can be inspected by regulators possibly the U.S. counterpart of the same big four firms in China. That shouldn't be a problem, right? Well, say if PricewaterhouseCoopers Chinese affiliate isn't cooperating with U.S. regulators, it would be able to have PwC's U.S. firm stand in, right? Well, that's something the big four have shown they really don't want to do. For many years, the big four have tried to have it both ways, On one hand, each of them portrays itself as one big, happy global family with auditors around the world who all belong to the same firm. But in fact, they're not the same firm. Each big four firm is actually a network of separately owned, legally independent firms in each company that do business. So PwC US and PwC China are two different animals. They're straddling the fence, and they're one firm when it suits their marketing purposes and different firms when it suits them trying to avoid legal liability. Co-audits are a long-shot idea at best, and they might require U.S. audit firms to make a choice they've always avoided. But if the U.S. doesn't want to see a significant chunk of China company market cap leave the U.S. for China China and Hong Kong, a long shot might be the only shot they have. Uh, Jay, uh, now we turn to some of the top podcasts uh, over the past week on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, first of all, we had episode two of The Compliance Live with Kim Yapchai, Chief K-12 
Council on Environmental, Social, and Governance at Tenneco. In this second episode, we took up the uh, in-house roles Kim held uh, in the general counsel's office on her road towards the CCO chair. We haven't made quite made it there yet. We also had episode 13 of the Wirecard Saga, Dirty Deeds Down Under, with myself and your colleague, Michael Ryder Gordon. Uh, and then in 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, uh, this month we're looking at training and communications. On Monday, it was sharing 360 degrees of communication. Tuesday, I had special guest, your colleague, Vin DeCiani, on compliance and the clash of cultures. Wednesday was using 360 degrees of compliance to tell a story. Uh, Thursday, using communication to drive a speak-up culture. And on Friday, using communications to foster your compliance brand. So it was a pretty good week on um, podcast. Uh, I was on a webinar Monday that was just fabulous, sponsored by the London Stock Exchange, where I was joined by Netta Madov, the CEO and co-founder of Vault Platform. Our host and, and moderator was Maxine G, the chief risk officer at the LSE. We took a look at uh, does culture drive compliance? Where's compliance going? Um, and what you need to do to be ready for 2021 and, and beyond. Uh, but uh, if you weren't able to attend the event, I've linked to the replay in the show notes. So check it out. It's a fabulous discussion. Yeah, it was a little bit early here on the uh, West Coast, but I am definitely looking forward to the replay. Uh, we've got a couple of good events coming forward uh, with K2 Integrity. On December 14th, they host a webinar on proliferation financing, risks, threats, and mitigation. The webinar will explore critical issues around understanding and combating the financing of weapons of mass destruction proliferation. And on December 17th, Dolphin and K2's Integrity's financial crimes compliance experts will host their latest Ask an Expert FinQuery webinar. Ex expect answers to questions on topics such as the latest developments in AML, CFT, sanctions, fraud, anti-bribery and corruption, and export controls, financial integrity risk related to the global pandemic, and regionally focused financial crimes. As always, we have links to the podcast and to the signups in the show notes. And um, I don't read this enough, so if anyone has questions for Tom, he can be reached at tfox at foxlaw.com. And if you have questions for me, I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So anything else on your end, Tom? Uh, we'd love to hear from uh, any of our fans, listeners, or others. If there are some things you'd like to hear us pontificate on, we are always happy to engage in the gift of the gab and pontificate on. You want to take us home, Jay? Yep. So, uh, as always, we hope that you are safe and healthy and well. Uh, we wish you a happy Hanukkah, which starts tonight at sundown. And on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 232, for the week ending December 11th, 2020, the holidays edition. We look forward to speaking to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and 
proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.